Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy. I'm here post first cup of coffee. Got a podcast commute for you today. Here on Thursday, February 27th. Nearly to the end of February, except we get that extra day. Leap for joy. That's why they call it leap day, because you leap for joy at having an extra day. They stole from you the previous three years. Oh, I'm going to sneeze. Thank you. <laughs> uh, let's see. So, coming back from Ryder Coffee. It was just Emily Ma and Trent today. And kind of a um, brisk and efficient coffee today. We were not particularly chatty. And everybody seemed to have things to do. It's just as good for me. I need to get back home. I got... um. Only did one hour before I had to go this morning. I had to stop and put gas on the car. And so I uh, got something like 700 words in that first hour. Got another 3,000, a little bit over on the Promised Queen yesterday. So that was, uh, yeah. Well, still, knock on wood, seems to be flowing pretty well. I don't know if this book is flowing more easily, which it kind of feels like it partly is, but I think it's also um, still very happy with this practice I'm engaging in. I wrote a blog post about it yesterday, uh, trying to stay off the internet for the first few hours of the day and off until I finish um, my words for the day. It seems to be working out really well. So a couple people commented on my blog post yesterday saying uh, that that they had done that before. Um, Megan Deutsch, it's like Megan Siana Deutsch. I'm not sure exactly how she says that. Even though I've met her in person, I didn't ask her. Megan, anyway. She mentioned that she had used to do that pretty regularly, you know, right before she did anything else, and that she'd backslid and <laughs> needed to to start. She said she was going to start it again this morning, so I'll be interested to hear how that worked out for her. It's so easy to backslide, you know, and I think that it's, um, it's really not on us. It's, you know, sort of this relentless pressure from uh, social media and all of the stuff that is um, demanding our attention. You know, it's it's money in their pockets to get our attention is what it comes down to. And so, I mean, maybe if we think of it that way is that uh, by giving them attention, we're paying them money. <laughs> we'll be a little bit more um, sherry of distributing it so freely, right? So, yeah, I'm happy with how things are going. Um, I did get the job teaching the students in Hong Kong online. So that will be very interesting. I'll be doing that in the evenings, um, 6 to 9 in the evenings, mostly. We'll see which evenings it ends up being. They're going to start matching me up with students. I signed my contract, and they're very excited to have me. It was really flattering and wonderful. And I may end up doing it past the um, pandemic 
time. They said right now the schools in Hong Kong are closed until April 20th. And then they're going to reassess at that point. Uh, really just amazing to, uh, to consider that. We were talking about that a little bit at Ryder Coffee, like what kinds of shape the pandemic will take in our own communities. I, I think that one of the common perceptions is that in the U.S. here, we are not as prepared uh, to deal with a pandemic, partly because of the current administration. And... You know, it's it's pretty interesting to to see. I think places like Hong Kong are more forward thinking, partly because of the density of the population. They have to deal with stuff like that really fast. When you have such a densely packed population like that, you don't have any choice but to have disease control. What's the word I want? Um, you know, emergency measures in place that they can act pretty quickly. So I'm looking forward to doing this. Teaching writing should be fun. Um, make uh, some money on, makes money on the side. I was gonna say on the side, but I think everything's kind of on the side. And isn't that, I mean, isn't that the definition, right? How do you decide what's a side gig, right? You know, if, you're, if you don't have a salaried, benefited job, does that make everything else, everything you do a side gig? Maybe so. So anyway, and, and then I also feel like um, I'm contributing. When I told somebody else that I was going to be doing this, they said, oh, that's so nice of you. And I said, well, they're, they're paying me. <laughs> So it's not out of the goodness of my heart necessarily, but it's um, you know, definitely uh, positive. I, I like being able to do work where I feel like I'm positively contributing to the world. I guess that's, that's one of my things. I, I know someone who works for Raytheon, and I don't really... You know, it's, it's hard to, you know, it's like, well, what are you really contributing to the world? What are you bringing to things, right? Um, maybe, you know, it's impossible to assess all of the moral implications of everything we engage in. I think that was one of the um, messages of The Good Place, you know, was that it's, it's impossible to be good. It's impossible to do you know, nothing harmful or nothing destructive ever because everything is so interconnected and there's so much interplay. But wherever I can, I try to only earn money by doing things that I feel like are of benefit to other people. It was one reason why I liked the day job of working on drinking water is I felt like that was an important thing to be doing. So uh, I listened to... Leslie Penelope's podcast this week where she accused me of making fun of her. I was not making fun of you, Leslie. She uh, announced our upcoming midwinter holiday fantasy romance anthology under a winter sky and claimed that I'd made fun of her for having her story written already. Um, 
I was just noting the differences in our work styles. Although I feel completely vindicated that I correctly pegged her as the student who would have her paper written a week before it was due. <laughs> totally unlike myself. But I was glad to hear her talk about that even though she does tend to be a high compliance personality and a rule follower that uh, she won't follow rules that are stupid to her. And I think that that's... I, I have trouble with people who follow rules slavishly. You know, like you'll occasionally encounter those people, you know, at a, at a retail store or something like that where they're like, yes, but this is the rule. And you're like, yeah, it's a stupid rule. Can we be smarter than the rules, please? Uh, in some cases, no. No, we can't. <laughs> but... Yes, I am. Um, I would say that I am not so much of an iconoclast that I would want to break all rules everywhere, regardless. But I definitely have an itchy thing about rules that make no sense that are in place only because you know sometimes rules get put in place and then they're just left there and never revisited. And I have a real problem with those or rules that are meant to cover some sort of extreme situation that never again recurs. Um, yeah, I definitely... Something of a rebel that way. There was talk when I was a teenager of me going to the Air Force Academy because I was a legacy father graduated from the Air Force Academy and my mother would joke that I could I wouldn't go because I would be that that one person who could never get over the wall <laughs> I think that was like an, an officer and a gentleman at the time she's like Jeff would be the one who could never get over the wall which you know, I probably if I had physically trained I might have been able to do that I think that I have enough determination that I probably could have done it but the main rule why I knew that, main reason that I knew, <laughs> main rule, there you go. The main reason that I knew that I would never be the suitable for something like the Air Force Academy is that I am not a good soldier. I have never been a good soldier. And more than that, I have no desire to be a good soldier. I will never be the person who, uh, you know, obeys commands with blind trust. I can't do it. So it's one thing that I, I really love about being a writer and having this career is that I really can do whatever I want when I do choose to listen to editorial or marketing advice or any of those things. It's still a choice. I don't have anybody holding it over my head saying, you must do this thing. I can choose to walk away from a contract. I suppose I could choose to walk away from a job or from a military position, but uh, as long as you are within those, then you're pretty tied down. And I do not miss that about having the day job, you know, like with there'd be like, here's the new corporate policy and you must follow this if you want to have your job. Ugh, you don't do well with them. 
So it's one of the things I remind myself that I, I really do love having that autonomy and the ability to set my own rules and guidelines. And certainly I am a fairly stern task business with myself with the rules that I set. You guys are probably aware of that. You know, like my no email until I'm done with words and no internet and uh, pretty pretty disciplined in that way I guess. But still it's the things that I choose. So one thing I've been thinking about, I've been listening to writing excuses. Several people have recommended it lately. And Leslie, also on her podcast a little while back, had recommended a particular episode on editing. And she had commented that it was an interesting episode because uh, Pat Rothfuss had used a particular analogy and Mary Robinette Kowal had pushed back saying, could he use an analogy that was less sexist? And so they went through, uh, it ended up being sort of like a good example of editing when you do get some, and revising, you know, when you do get some pushback. But how do you handle it? How do you go from there? How do you decide to change your wording? It wasn't intended. In fact, they talked about, you know, cutting it out of the podcast and then they kept it because they felt like it was instructive. But anyway, Pat Rothfuss had used the analogy um, that about characters, and he said that how you treated a primary character versus a secondary character was the difference between a marriage, a long-term relationship, and that weekend fling with a dark-eyed girl in some tropical location. And Mary Robinette had said, can, I've heard you use this analogy before, and I find it sexist. Can you do something? Can you reframe it with something else? And he ended up coming back saying, well, why is this sexist? Is it because it's gendered? And they all kind of agreed that maybe saying, you know, the dark-eyed mistress, and they, I can't remember where he said, what location he picked, uh, that that was probably not a great thing to say. <laughs> And I think Mary Robinette had a bit of trouble explaining why she reacted to it, why she felt it was sexist, because it wasn't just that it was gendered. And Pat Rothfuss had the, you know, was saying, but this is how I feel about my characters. They are like my relationship with my wife. And I've been thinking about this ever since. I've been thinking, well, why is that? Because I have the same reaction that the analogy bothers me for its male gaze and and I and I had trouble defining exactly why it bothered me and I was thinking you know, like what would I have said in the, if I were on that podcast and I this morning I was reading from the golden bow and Sir James Fraser, who wrote it, had a foreword in there, and he had a line about uh, a king who, uh, someone would be selected as a king for like a week, and obviously a man, not someone, a man would be selected as a king for a week, 
and that he would rule as a king and even enjoy the king's concubines as his own uh, before them being sacrificed, which is the golden vow is about sacrificing of kings and so forth. And, and I thought, huh, you know, it's so interesting how that's phrased. You know, even enjoy the king's concubines as if <laughs> these are, as if these women, these concubines are not people, that they are part of the possessions and trappings of being king. And I realized that that's how things have been framed in history. But it is very male gaze, right? You know, it's like, oh, you know, enjoy the concubines, you know, sort of women being simply another spoil of war. And I thought, well, that's what bothers me in the way that Pat Rothfuss frames that analogy. It's not just that it's gendered. It's that his comparing his relationship with his characters to his relationship with his wife or the slow-eyed mistress is it's making them into an extension of himself as if they are not autonomous people living their own lives. The relationship is not me having a relationship with another human being. It's that these women are somehow <clears throat> made to seem like simply characters in his world. And I think that's why it's a troublesome analogy. Why is there someone in our driveway? Huh. There's, I'm just about to pull into our driveway and there's a car in here. And I don't know why I don't recognize it. And now he's getting out. I'm just going to leave you guys on the recording to see what's going on here. Good morning. Good morning. I leave my car right there in your door. Uh, uh, what I'm doing, I'm, I work in this house long time ago. Ah. And I didn't see you. I don't, do you buy this house? or? Yeah, we've been here 10 years. Yeah, because, yeah, I think a little over than 10 years. I used to work over here for an old man. Uh -huh. He was sick, and, uh, and uh, I used to work for it. Anyway, so I I come this way, and I saw the house. I remember, you know, and I said, I'm going to stop and ask him for work. Uh -huh. uh, I have a lot of clients over here. <clears throat> I think it's, uh, that's uh, too slow right now, so I'm, I give him my, pushing my cars to, you know, to if, and see if someone can call me or, you know. Sure. I need to work. Anyway, uh, and uh, you might need a good job over here. I give him a good price. Um, uh, dead trees, flagstone pediums, uh, you know, all kind of stuff. So you might be interested. Okay. We, we don't need anything right now, but appreciate you stopping by. Okay. So my car is right there in your door. Okay. So just get him and please call me one of these days sometimes. Okay. you're ready, okay? All right. Thanks. Thank you.
this actually happens a fair amount out here. We have a lot of uh, people that stop by, a lot of people doing sort of freelance handyman work. And so I, I pretty reflexively just say no because um, I don't really know anything about them. But yeah, it was a older man that we bought the house from, and he uh, moved into assisted living from here. He always got interesting mail. He was very much into the arts. So the only bad part of that is that I don't remember what I was saying. Oh, I think I was just finishing up talking about the my feelings on on Patrick Rothfuss saying that and why that felt like a, um, a problematic analogy. And I think, um, yeah, it's as much as writers joke about our characters being real to us or being extensions or I, I'm, I'm going to stick with that being real to us that they are you know that they talk to us that they are sometimes um, what recalcitrant or want to do things their own ways and I know I talk about characters as being the people who are drawn to the campfire and come and sit down and tell the story I think it's disingenuous to talk about our characters as if they are autonomous people. So I think that's part of why that's a little troublesome because, oh, and sure enough, here's his card in the door. Sure enough, oh, I said sure enough. Sorry, I get distracted, don't I? In the house now. Uh, talking about your spouse or someone with whom you have an affair the same way that you talk about creating and writing and editing your characters is yeah a little a little uncomfortable particularly if it's a man discussing the women in his life right you know and so Yeah. All right. Enough said. I am home. I'm going to get to work. I hope that you all have a fantastic Thursday. And reminding you that first cup of coffee is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. And you will find more podcasts that you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. And I will talk to you all tomorrow. Okay. Bye-bye.